2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In his new book, The Loneliest Americans, Jay Caspian Kang posits two Asian Americas, one populated by upper-middle-class people who have made rapid economic and educational strides, and another group of immigrants and refugees who are barely hanging on to the bottom of American society. The problem, for Kang, is that those empowered to speak for Asian Americans concentrate on their own class problems and not those of the working poor. Is there enough to unite these groups into a cohesive political unit? And no matter the answer, should anyone be trying to do so? That's coming up on Forum after this news. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Demographic labels are a double-edged sword. On one side, a bigger group, Latinos, Asian Americans, gives heft to political concerns. On the other, some terms may become so big that the connections between the people gathered under the banner are too tenuous to hold them together for any practical purpose. This is a debate we've been having endlessly in the Latin world. And so I was almost refreshed to find J. Caspian Kang struggling with the affordances and restrictions of the term Asian-American in his new book, The Loneliest Americans. Kang pushes and pulls on this theme through chapters on the Third World Liberation Front and other Asian student movements, the burning and looting of Korean stores during the 1992 L.A. riots, and an examination of the politically confusing misogyny of some online communities of Asian men. It's a wily, interesting, and intentionally provocative book. And here to fight with me and all of you out there, we have Jay Caspian Kang. Welcome to the show,
3: Jay. Are are we fighting?
2: (laughs) Not yet. Not yet.
3: Okay. Um, Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm ready.
2: So Asian American, as a term didn't always exist it has this specific history that you trace. Can you tell us where it originated and how it was used?
3: Yeah, um it started actually you know here in the Bay area, um, not so far where I'm from where I'm sitting right now at a house in uh, on Hearst Avenue in Berkeley, and some Asian students at the time who were trying to get involved in all the movements that were happening right the anti war movement was happening black Panthers were starting to become active in Oakland. Um, there's the Chicano movement there's, there's a lot of, you know, it's the late 60s in Berkeley. Um, and they found that there wasn't a place for them right that they would try different groups and some of them would actually say hey, you know, like maybe you should start your own thing. And so they got together at this house, as legend goes, and um, they came up with the term Asian-American, right? Because before it was like Oriental or it was, you know, Japanese or or Chinese. And uh, that term is the one that we use today. But, you know, its origins are in a very specific, you know, sometimes radical conception of, of what these people would be like, uh, you know, um, in one of the books that I read, it was described of by the people, you know, one of the people who was back there at the time, it was described as like, basically everyone, you know, all the others, right? <laughs> everyone who doesn't fit. So, um, and the idea was to try and join those people together in some sort of political movement. Now, you know, if you ask people today what Asian American is, like, I, you know, unless they're, unless they have studied this or unless they uh, are, you know, a scholar in this, I don't think that that's what they would say. Right.
2: Yeah, it always had much more of that connotation of, you know, the the Third World Liberation Front, you know, which was at SF State and is this sort of anti-colonial movement, but sort of inside the United States. Right. I mean, it really had that flavor of
3: 1960s radicalism. Right. And um, that was, you know, that was ultimately where a lot of these uh, early Asian Americans and, you know, I'm not saying that as the people, but, you know, the people who had sort of classified themselves such politically they did put a lot of their energy into you know the student movements at at Cal and at uh, and at SF State around trying to get an ethnic studies program um, going, which I guess is relevant today in California, right? As of uh, as of last week, because of yeah, the, the right. bill to 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 have all high school students take ethnic studies. Yeah.
2: Uh, At the same time, in the 1960s, you kind of draw this line of discontinuity in American history in 1965 with the passage of the Hart Sellers Act. Uh, We actually have LBJ, we have a cut of uh, Lyndon Johnson introducing uh, this act. Let's hear that.
0: This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure Of our daily lives, or really add importantly to either our wealth or our power. So
2: it's an amazing bill signing, right? LBJ (laughs) playing down this act. You know, it won't add to our wealth, it won't affect the lives of millions. You're sort of like, it's almost like an inversion (laughs) of the classic bill introduction. But you actually note that this bill did change America in this huge way.
3: Right, I mean, I, that that clip is always so funny to me because I can't imagine, you know, signing something and just being, like, "Hey, listen, you know, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> this is this is just nonsense that we're doing because uh, we're trying to make some people happy." But yeah, no, he was wrong, you know. And um, you know, I hate to say it, but the people at the time, you know, who were the opponents of the bill, who were warning about like, you know, quote floods of of migrants coming from Asia. Um, in all parts of the world that they didn't want people to come from, you know, they were right, you know, billions and millions of people did come because of the 1965 uh, Immigration Act. And, um, you know, it, So it, yeah, tell it's... us
2: what that did. Tell, like, just give
3: us like kind of the basics on how this changed immigration, like kind of before and after. So before 1965, you know, you have a uh, uh, starting in 1880, you know, in the, in the late 19th century with the Chinese Exclusion Act, right. Um, before that, the Page Act, uh, there's all sorts of restrictive laws um, on Asian immigration to the United States. And, It was very very hard to make it into the U.S. if you were Asian, Um, and most people either uh, came in through you know other means or or there like tiny little quotas starting in the middle of the 20th century that would allow in somewhere around 100 people a year right from each country, and uh, you know it was so restrictive that like let's say that you were like a Chinese person who grew up in South America, which is you know uh, not not common but definitely happened, and you tried to immigrate to the United States you would not be counted from the country that you're coming from there you would just be counted as Chinese so it's totally racialized right there's 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 no other logic to it and what the what the 1965 Immigration Act did is that it removed those quotas um, and it opened up immigration for you know thousands more of uh, people a year um, starting think- in the early 1970s. Oh, you, you lost me?
2: Lost you just for a second, <laughs> but go, go ahead.
3: Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, starting in the early 1970s, um, you know, a ton of people started to come. And then what they did was they, uh, they brought over their families because part of the 1965 Immigration Act also allowed for, you know, what is now called chain migration. And so you would have one person come over, they would stay here a while, and then they would bring over their families. And that, that's generally how, you know, so many Asian Americans are, are in the country today.
2: It's so you know you kind of call attention to the effects of this migration on the country, not only just sort of in in terms of demographic composition, but on really on the social position of the Asian people who came before and after the act. Like, what's that sort of central move of the book?
3: Um, I'm sorry, one more time.
2: Yeah, like that. Just that people who came before and people who came after kind of have a, a just a different social position in the United States,
3: right? So uh the first is that there's just many 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 more people who came post 1965 right so the people who came before 1965 are a small number of people um does not mean they're not important but you know like they they have been sort of dwarfed by the post 1965 immigrants but also the people who came who were here before had lived in the united states for generations right like they had uh they were either japanese farm workers or they're you know people who could even trace their Uh, lineage back to the gold rush or the or the railroads and you know because of that they had experiences with america like they could see how america dealt with them in a way that informed their politics and the way that they looked at the world and so you have like uh for example in the people who started the asian american term like the enjoyed third world uh, liberation front you know some of them had been interned right like uh during during world war ii so it's a radically different way of Seeing what the country can do to you, like it's a radically different way of seeing the sweep of history. It is a deeper connection to the idea of America and the understanding of some of its shortfall uh, shortcomings, than people who just sort of arrive in nineteen in the nineteen seventies and then set up shop and then um, and then you know perhaps like in generations, their children will see all of this. But you know that that's not the population that we're talking about today. Like the, the population we're talking about today has extremely shallow roots in America.
2: Hmm. And so you think because of that they kind of can't grasp American oppression in the same way?
3: Well, I don't know if it's a question of grasping American oppression. I think that you know that they have a different understanding of what America is, right? Like they 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 still tend to have more you know capitalist ideas about, uh, and they still I think believe more in this sort of idea of the immigrant dream, right? Because because they are immigrants and they are they are recent, but I do. And I think that as a, as a result, you know, they tend to be a a little uh, less political, like more, and they tend to, you know, uh, be much more assimilationist in some sorts of ways. Now that's, you know, part of the book is distinguishing between that population and and then recent immigrants who live in enclaves and sort of, uh, you know, don't really have a connection to America. And, you know, for that, those people like the, their politics are totally different. You know, they're mostly informed by, uh their homelands right so you they're much more interested. even my parents when i was growing up they're much more interested in politics in korea than than here in the united states and what do you think their dream was for you here or for themselves my parents yeah oh man i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i think that they wanted me and my sister to be you know successful but i don't know what they i don't think they do what successful means you know um and uh, I think they had very vague conceptions of what that could be, right? And so, uh, I think that there's this idea that like immigrants come over, they go to the cities, they want to move to the suburbs and have like a white picket fence and you know two cars, whatever the whatever the whatever the story is. But you know, I don't know, I don't think my parents knew what a white picket fence was. <laughs> In 1979, you know. I don't think they knew what a suburb was in 1979, right? And so it takes time, but like, and then, you know, the the conception of what success is is totally formed by the 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 community that you're in and the experiences that you have. And so you just have these very varied ideas. And um, you know, for the the only thing that you generally know, right, if you're an immigrant and you come here is that, you know well, you need education, right? This country, you need education to to do well. And so that's why people just pour everything into that. It's uh, it's not some cultural thing where it's like education is important. It's, it's that like, well, we don't know how else to succeed in America. That's the only thing that we know.
2: Yeah. We're talking with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for the New York Times opinion page and New York Times Magazine about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. And we want to hear from you. How do you see assimilation playing out kind of in your own life? Do you feel assimilated? Do you feel like it happened to you? If you're the child of immigrants, what was their dream for you? And of course, do you have a bone to pick with Jay Caspian Kang? Here's your chance. He claims he likes to debate. Uh, give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jay Caspian-Kang, newish Berkeley resident, staff writer for the New York Times Opinion page and New York Times Magazine. We're talking about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. So you wrote this book to provoke a different kind of discussion than what you were seeing. What were you like writing against in the modern discourse?
3: Well, you know... uh, I had been thinking about, I've been writing about sort of Asian American things for about 10 years, right? Um, And uh, I had written a series of articles about, um, you know, one of them was about some fraternity brothers at Baruch College in New York City who were all from Queens. They're all from, uh, you know, sort of immigrant enclaves. And they had done a fraternity hazing ritual that ended up with a kid who died. Um, And then I wrote a piece about, uh, you know, the Harvard affirmative action case. And in all of that reporting, you know, like I spent a lot of time in in parts of Queens and Brooklyn that were heavily Asian and not particularly wealthy, right, actually quite poor. And, you know, it, it occurred to me that uh, during all this time that, that, you know, there's such an imbalance of stories about and the way that we talk about Asian Americans uh, towards people like myself, right, who well-educated, family came over certainly struggled quite a bit at the beginning, but eventually hit a upwardly mobile track. And then, you know, their children go to college and then their children end up doing okay in the world. Um, and that there needed to be some sort of intervention or else that we would not have any sort of coherent politics, right? Like uh, out, even, you know, outside of kids in Flushing and, and, uh, and in Sunset Park in Brooklyn, there's so many communities of Asian Americans uh all over the the country itself that that, that have a completely different set of priorities, right? A different way of talking about themselves, a different way of identifying themselves. Most don't even call themselves Asian-Americans unless like they're filling out a survey or filling out some sort of census information. And so, um, yeah, the book is meant to be an intervention that we should, you know, either expand the category, uh, we should either refocus the category or we should just get rid of it altogether because like, you know, like w- w- what does it really mean? You know, like, uh, like, um you know south asian people for example right uh people from india people from pakistan people from uh bangladesh like uh you know sometimes they're asian-american sometimes they're not if you walked up to somebody on the street and you said what is an asian-american i was standing there they would point to me you know or if i was standing there with some of my friends who are south asian i'd say which one of us is asian i bet 90 percent of them would, would point to me right now that doesn't mean that that's right or wrong or whatever but right like the 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 it's just to prove that the the, the label is just so amorphous and, and and so contextualized in that, you know, it, it ultimately ends up being almost meaningless after a while.
2: So I'm curious, why didn't you write the book about those people, Asian Americans who don't have money? Like why not center the book there?
3: Well, you know, I am a firm believer in journalism, but I do not and as such, I do not believe in this sort of idea of uh giving voice to the voiceless all the time, right? Like I was not trying to write a savage inequalities type of book, right? Um, where, cause I, I assume, you know, I imagine that most people actually do instinctively know that, that there are poor Asians, right? Like, you know, like who delivers your food if you live in New York city, right? Like uh, in, in the Bay area, right? Like when you go down to Chinatowns, right? If you drive down through parts of uh, San Francisco, Right, like you see, poor Asian people, right, and they're generally invisible. And so, um, you know, the the book is not meant to be uh, a validation that those people exist. I, in fact, think that, that type of thinking is quite, quite, quite corny. You know, like just being like, "Hey, you know, here I am. I am presenting these stories to you." Like, I, I don't think that that is a good way to go about it at all. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that we should we should understand that we all know that this is true. You know. And the book is really addressed to, you know, people. Um, it is meant to be a wake-up call for people like myself, right? And not just within the Asian American community, right? This is, this is any community, I think, has these issues, right? I, I talked to, um, yesterday I talked, I did an interview with a, with a Black host, and he was talking about how those same,
1: hey. having the oh, yeah. struggles
3: of, of people. Um, that all of that is, you know, that's true in that community. I'm sure Alexis is true in the Latin community as well, right? Sure. So, um, I, I think that that as an intervention, right? That thats that is that that is the purpose of the book, right? It is not. It is not a a book of hey, let's let's get everyone, you know, here here are some stories of these people.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of your key mentors in life was uh, Noel Ignatiev, uh, this right. radical organizer, scholar. You know, and in, in his books, you know, Race Trader: How the Irish Became White, it was it's really about you know building this cross racial class solidarity. But you seem to be arguing in this book for building cross class racial solidarity. Is that kind of the intervention?
3: Right. Yeah. I. You know. I uh, Noel was uh, you know friend and mentor is my History professor when I was a freshman in college, and you know, um, uh, his idea was, you know, like there must be some sort of way in which like, you can build politics around the working class that will allow them to, you know, at the time when he was working in factories, it was you know, 1950s, 1960s. Um, you know, there was great segregation in both the unions there and also on the factory floors, and the idea was like, can we see that our struggles are shared, right? And how do we see that our struggles are shared? And I think that right now what we have in America is that we have a lot of sort of—I I would not use the term, but I think this is what he would say—it's like a lot of bourgeois identity politics, right? We have, we have, like I said before, the concerns of a of a upper upperly mobile middle class, upper middle class group of minorities who sort of come out and they say this is what's important for our group, right? So it's like is it like who won an Oscar this year, right? Like how many, how many people of X group won an Oscar or, you know, for Asian Americans, it's like, why is Scarlett Johansson in in all these movies playing, playing Asian characters, or it's like, I have all these microaggressions in the cor- corporate workspace, right? That's sort of the face, the mainstream face of Asian American politics. I don't think that there's any pathway for solidarity in those types of concerns, because it, first of all, it takes out almost everybody who's poor, right? Which is, much more people than people who are rich right that's just the structure of america but also i don't think that it's a particularly sympathetic way of going about politics right like i as an asian american who you know has some proximity to hollywood like i don't care what movie scarlett johansson is is it you know my parents don't care you know my sister doesn't care i don't many i don't know many people who do care and so uh and yet the people who do care seem to be the sort of you know loudest voice in these in each of these groups and so Um, is there a way to abandon that? Is there a way to sort of focus the, the, the politics around things that people do care about, right? Like, like people who are suffering, like people who have lost their homes, like people who are homeless, people who, these are all things that, you know, people can sort of get outside of themselves and and put some political energy into. And since every one of our groups has, you know, some people who are suffering, right? Uh, people, people who are poor, then I think those are much more, uh, valuable ways of of looking at solidarity than like trying to do this, uh, you know, like identity identity thing where where it's so much focused on on people who have already sort of made it in America. Yeah.
2: Let's bring in Makila from Berkeley. Welcome to the show.
5: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, thanks for joining us.
5: So I'm calling because I'm also an East Coast transplant, and I grew up in a house where my parents really instilled in my sister and i that if we are as american as possible we will fit in and succeed right and it was the whole you know myth of the melting pot sort of thing you know they were part of that first wave of immigrants coming to the states and um so we did it right like we didn't eat with (laughs) our hands we're indian and we um you know and we spoke english at home exclusively and Mm -hmm. my parents were constantly trying to push us to have an american accent and you know, we were relatively successful with that. I mean, they themselves were kind of, we were kind of poor growing up. Um, And then I moved out here and I met sort of that next wave of Asians and discovered that I just didn't fit in. So, you know, (laughs) the idea of, of trying to, you know, be a cohesive Asian American political base gets so complicated when you start to look at the different waves of immigrants that come to the States and the different lessons that we learn. Right, when I was growing up, you know, Mississippi Masala was like this big movie, and I happen to have a black boyfriend at the time, and people would yell, Mississippi Masala. And meanwhile, you know, at home, my parents were like, Ur, I don't think you should. So, you know, it's just – it's a – you know, there's like all this like inside the home, outside the home, within the community, outside the community. And there's so much discomfort that it – you know, everybody's so in it that it's really hard to kind of look beyond that and say, oh, what's really happening? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times also when you don't have success at work, there's this feeling for that first wave that, oh, what did I do wrong? You know, and then someone points out, well, maybe because they're racist. And you're like, what? No, I, but
3: yeah. I'm American. <laughs> I'm, yeah, that's happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> M- Mikhaila, th- thank
2: you so much for, uh, for that. I-, I mean, I think, Jay, I think she kind of like teed you up I mean this is like this this is the exact complex of issues that you're trying to kind of like pull apart right
3: right what a wonderful call I mean you know I I hope you know I don't mean to plug this just this way but you know I I have found that in the week that the book has been out the most sort of heartfelt and the most uh the most and honestly the most reactions I've gotten are from South Asian people you know who um which is interesting because the book generally focuses on East Asian people and um, I, I, think that it is, you know, I think that the way I grew up in a very similar way to, to Makila, it's, uh, I, you know, my parents were I grew up speaking Korean because my parents didn't speak much English, but then by the time I was eight or nine years old, it was just like English only, right? Um, it was we lived in north carolina so you know at the time was not really a hotbed of, of asian american of asian american people there so um you know like and then and then you do sort of come across new people like i feel this you know I've, in the book i write about this because i you know walking around berkeley when i moved here about two years ago and you know i was like wow there's so many asian kids on campus you know and it, it was like you used i'm 41 years old you know you have you have these different types of revelations all the time And then you feel sort of embarrassed by it, right? Because you're just like, well, why wouldn't I know that this is true, right? Um, And that's just part of just growing up as like a, as a minority in America is that you sort of learn things at different paces and all the information isn't available to you. But, you know, the, to address the second part of it, um, that sort of chaos, right? That sort of confusion, that sort of like, there are no real connections, even not just between me, you know, like uh, me and, and. And and poor immigrants, or me and me and you know South Asian people, or or me and people from like uh, you know from from the, you know the Lao population, let's say here in uh, in the East Bay, right? That that we don't speak the common language, we don't have common foods, we don't have you know we don't have sort of we have different class structures, like that. That's that that's all true, right? We have a chaos in Asian America, and. My argument, you know, is basically that that we need to base, you know, like we need to we need to understand that this is true. We need to admit that this is true. We need to stop trying to build these sorts of identities around and say that we all are included in it because we aren't. You know, like like if if we any type of Asian American identity that you want to build is going to exclude 90% of Asian Americans. And is that really a good way to go about it? Like, should we keep trying? That's a, you know, it's a question that I bring up in the book. Um, I mean, I guess the
2: one answer to that would be though, right. That there is just, you know, economically many Asian American immigrants have done well. Like, you know, look at even the 20th percentile, it's still Asian Americans doing a lot better than, than quote unquote, Hispanic people or black people. And yet we also know that racism persists, just like, you know, Makila was saying on the, on the call. And so it, it, what's hard is this sort of identity almost has to be formed as a, a counterbalance to the sort of white culture kind of coming at you, right? I mean, that also creates the sort of these strange shapes to this, to this identity, no?
3: Yes, I you know, I'm not a person, you know, I'm not a class reductionist, right? Um, I think sometimes I get accused of being such, but I am not, you know, like I am not somebody who believes that, All identity politics should be like, you know, uh, struck down and banned by law or something like that, right? Like, I understand that people identify themselves in groups, right? And that in America, in a large part, those groups are going to be racialized because that's the country that we live in, right? And so part of the book is grappling with this because, you know, I do think the term is so useless. I do think it's so exclusive. And yet I think it's so personal to people, right? Like, it's how they, identify with themselves. And part of their life's journey is trying to figure out if they fit in this group or not. And I don't, I don't begrudge anyone for that process. I, I went through it myself. You know, I think I went through it quite badly actually compared to some other people. So I can't even judge people who I think went through it badly. You know, like I've, maybe I went through it the worst of anybody, which is maybe why I you know, wrote this book. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that there, you know, th- my hope is that, that if we do look at class more, Right. If we do look at different ways of immigration, if we do say, "Hey, these people came over in this 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 uh, in this era, and they came over from this country, and this is what the reason why they came over." And these people came from the same country fifty years later, and they have a completely from a completely different province, and they have a completely different set of politics. We can actually get a much more accurate appraisal of what Asian America is. Right. Like we and we can actually get a much more specific type of politics if we decide to engage in, in the type of politics around asian america and right now there's just it's just so blanketed you know it, it, it's so all-encompassing and it's so confusing that i just don't know like I, I just don't know where it goes at this point
2: Yeah, we're talking with jay caspian kang staff writer for the new york times opinion page and new york times magazine about his new book the loneliest americans and we'd like to hear from you if- If you have heritage in Asia, how do you feel about the term Asian-American? Do you feel like it applies to you? Does it fit? As Jay just said, you know, in your life journey, have you found that you actually fit into this group? Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org want to add Sydney from Oakland into our conversation. Welcome to the show, Sydney. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, we sure can. Go ahead. Great. Um, I just wanted to say, Jay, I read
6: the book. I really love it. Um, it rang very, very true to me, and I've been uh, a fierce uh, advocate for the book um, among my friends and
3: colleagues. Thank um, you, Sydney. Are you, Sydney, are you Korean? No, I'm Viet. I'm Viet ah, and Laoshan. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for it. Thank you for reading. Yeah. And what yeah, were you going to say? Yeah, you know, go ahead. Oh, go ahead.
6: I just wanted to, you know, quickly give some background for myself. Um, you know, I, I, my parents came here in the eighties, nineties, um, came, uh, you know, escaped the violence in Laos um, in the sixties, went to a refugee camp in Thailand, moved to France and stayed there until the eighties. And so my, you know, my, my childhood in America, um, after that point, uh, was among all other nations. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, my high school is 80% Asian. My town is the most Asian city in America, like right. currently. Um, and so th- the things that you talk about, this um, sort of otherized or self-authorized uh, identity of Asian America... That was never really present for me growing up. Like, I never really understood those things outside of the sort of uh, weak cultural signifiers that you talk about in the book, Mm -hmm. Drinking Boba, uh, listening to, you know, um, Vietnamese music from my parents going to temple, that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. it was never like a political identity. And so, you know, you talk about sometimes that you were never really racialized until you met... You know, um, like a black person, uh, and uh, you know, not in a flippant way, but you know, you, the, the racial reality of America never came to you until you really um, faced it face to face in stark terms. And for me, um, the sort of projections, the um, forcedness of, the Asian-American identity as this internally inherent political subject, it's totally incoherent for me because I never had to face those racial realities growing up.
2: Wait, hey, Sydney, hang hang with us. We're going to have to go into the break, but hang with us. We're talking with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for The New York Times Opinion Page and New York Times Magazine about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've been talking with listener Sydney from Oakland, as well as with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for the New York Times Opinion Page and New York Times Magazine, about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. And uh, Jay, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to something that Sydney said, which was about sort of how you became racialized as, right. a, as a small child, like how you came into kind of racial consciousness, I guess I would say.
3: Well, um, you know, I think that as a child, I had some understanding that I was, not white, right, but it never crossed my mind because my parents were, as I said, so fully assimilationist, and there's this great contradiction that I think a lot of people will identify with if they grew up in immigrant households, or it's just like, okay, we speak Korean at home, <laughs> my parents don't speak much English, Right but um their message to to me is like none of this matters you know <laughs> like you're just as american as everybody else and you know you believe it cuz you're a kid right and you know uh, uh, this is not everybody grew up this way right but i certainly grew up this way i think a lot of people will identify with this and um you know i was thinking about this the other day where um you know the i remember that by the, when i was 6 or 7 years old we moved to the suburbs for a little bit in boston and um and you know, one of my first real clear memories was standing at the bus circle and seeing the Metco bus come up, right? Metco was the busing program in, in Boston. And um, you know, seeing black students get off the bus and and um, you know, I it was it I I you know, I remember it even right now, like, you know, in some sort of pre moment, I guess, but like it's flying back to me. And it's, you know, like I, I just remember thinking at that time, right, that that maybe I am not. Like everyone else at this school, but I am also not those people right, and that that is just a profound experience you know like it 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 it, it first of all it's like well, I'm not either right so what what side am I going to choose and at the age of six, you don't really think you know you're like well, I don't know, I'm six, you know, but the thought does happen and it forms you know it for me at least it, it formed basically everything that i thought right and yeah. it continued when we moved to north carolina where at the time there were almost no asian families in our town but there are a lot of black families as well um and then there are a lot of white families and and uh th- you know that sort of idea where where you where you start to try and figure out where that is right um i don't know i think it's a process mm-hmm. that all all immigrants go through you know,
2: do you ever feel jealous of people like Sydney who grew up in heavily Asian communities? I mean, we moved from like a super Mexican part of L.A. when I was a kid, a <laughs> town called Silmar, to like a totally right. white place. And I oftentimes <laughs> wish we'd stayed. You know, I, I think it would have been culturally helpful for me.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. You know, one of the one of the things that people you know sometimes accuse me of is being like self-hating, you know, and then they say, well, I grew up in an enclave around all Asian people. We had a wonderful time. And um you know, I don't have all these hangups that this guy has. And, you know, to them, I just say, yeah, that's probably true. You know, um, it's a strange thing to, like, make fun of someone about, you know, like, uh, you know, oh, you're all messed up. And like, yeah, you know, I'm pretty messed up. <laughs> by all of this. I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> um, try to try to write something about it, but you, know, you don't have to be mean to me about it. Like, um, but yeah, you know, I think that the kids who grew up in those types of enclaves definitely have a different type of uh not i don't think they have a different conception of what asian american is necessarily but they certainly have a different you know i don't think they're yeah that they they may many of them may be spared from you know a lot of the neurosis that that those of us who grew up like me and you go through you know (laughs) let's
2: bring in joseph from sacramento (laughs) hey joseph
1: hello uh is actually uh joseph from the bay area uh
2: originally from um San Jose. Oh, hey. Uh, okay. Joseph from San Jose. I apologize.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, Filipino Americans, you know, that, that term is, is it interesting. Um, we had more affinity with the blacks than the Latinos coming up in San Jose in the 70s. Right.
3: Um,
1: you know, I think because of our colonial relationship with, with Spain and, and the U.S. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my peers, we were all uh, military-backed. You know, we, our fathers immigrated to the U.S. via the U.S. Uh, military service.
3: Hmm.
1: And it's interesting, in high school, you had the Asian club, and then we had our own club. We had the Filipino Students Association, and it confused everybody. We said, well, you know, with the, the Chinese and the, uh, the Japanese. Hmm. You know, and we would do this thing, we said, we're Pacific Islanders? You know, like we had no sense of geography. <laughs> <laughs> you know and we were ex- we, we we were very very chauvinistic about about this idea of being filipino. Right. You know, and we didn't really connect with the uh, the other Asians. And I think a lot of it was a a sort of this 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 uh, this class distinction with with with, so, with with some of the Filipinos versus the the other Asians. Huh. You know, a lot of us came from very, you know, Working class type of uh, uh, situations, you know. Uh, I'd have to say that the U.S. military service is a, was a blue collar organization in the seventies. You know, yeah. you, you didn't make a lot of money being a being being a, being a military man. You know, so, Joseph, 70s. as
2: time went on, can I ask you how you've ended up identifying? Have you, over time, been like, all right, fine, I'm Asian American, or have you stuck? No, I'm Filipino American.
1: Uh, I think I'm I'm pretty much still, you know. Uh, holding on to that, to that Filipino American thing, but I will, I will have to say though, the, uh, the current generations—they're a little bit more, uh, you know, they, they, they tend to to connect to that particular identity. But there's a cost to that. I would say the cost of that is when you're thrown into this uh, Asian American box. There's some positives, but there's also some negatives. Like currently, you know, you have the whole uh, Asian hate thing. Yeah. There was a time when when Filipinos they didn't touch us because cause I'm not trying to brag, but they knew that that we we were the Asians you didn't mess with, okay. But then you know now there, it's like it, it, it seems like there's this mentality that, that 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 people can harass Asians in general with, with impunity. Yeah, but there was a time you know uh, we, we we tended to put it you know put it all on 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 the line man and, 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 and you know we, we we paid heavily for it. This this, this maybe this this sorta of machismo thing that we inherited maybe from the Spanish or maybe it's just from our cultural heritage of, of like just easily being offended. And, and we see we we, we saw how we, we, we paid for it. We paid for it. You know, I got friends who, who ended up in juvenile hall in the system in the penitentiary. Just just yeah. Because we wanted to be, you know,
2: badasses. Well, thank you, Joseph, for that. Jay, I-, I wanted to give you a chance. We've had some uh, comments, too, of at- people asking,
3: you know, how should you approach
2: this current wave of anti-Asian violence?
3: Well, you know, uh, I think that, um, I don't know. You know, I, I think that, that people organizing is great, you know, and I-, I think that people people trying to protect themselves is is natural right and i think that that raising awareness is great i mean all that sincerely right um i think that you know what we should i think it's another example though where you know we need to talk about what actually is happening most of these places right like we need to talk about who the people are who who are the victims of some of this violence right so um and we shouldn't we shouldn't sort of bring it back into a broad asian american mainstream politics like so one of the examples that i write about um in I think the essay that I wrote for the New York times magazine is that after the Georgia spa murders, right. Um, this, this horrible, this horrible event, um, two days later, like if you went on, if you go to, if you go through the news, if you, if there's, there's just testimonials of Asian American people like me, you know, talking about the time when somebody mistook me for a delivery driver or something like that. Right. Or, or I feel bad because I changed my name, you know, or my, I anglicized my name from like Hyungja to Jay, right? I didn't say any of this stuff, but, you know, this is a sort of temperature that was out there at the time. And, you know, what was erased was like all of the specific things that put those women in such a precarious place. And you can go all the way back to imperialism to talk about that, right? But you can also just specifically talk about the conditions of, of poverty and of 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 sex work all these different things that 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 put those people in the put pla- in in those places those things were there right but they're drowned out once again by the concerns of uh upwardly mobile middle upper middle class professional class of asian americans who for some reason you know take every opportunity to turn every type of tragedy into into something about them right it's it, like you know just as well as i do it's like half of this stuff ends up being about like uh positioning within the media right like which is like the least important thing you know uh, at that time and so um i don't know I, I think that 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 we should do things like you know quote raise awareness whatever that term means but we should raise awareness about the actual about the actual thing you know we shouldn't raise awareness about asian america as an idea that's like translated by by a bunch of uh cultural commenters because it's like it, that, that that's useless it's almost disrespectful to the people who died You know,
2: a couple of uh, comments, uh, uh, not quite on this, but around this topic. Jackie writes, my observation with Caucasian friends of mine is the root of Asian racism uh, is that they view the various peoples that are encompassed as Asian as economic threats because many have been successful in our society. Of course, that's due to hard work and in many cases, a good education. But these whites feel threatened. Another listener tweets. Part of the reason I see a focus on those bourgeois concerns like microaggressions is that that's all I see other more visible minorities doing. I don't see any other examples or pathways to visibility and acceptance. You have a perspective as very much an outsider. I do wonder if in parts of California where there are significant populations of East Asians who don't grow up as outsiders,
3: uh, uh, what that's going to look like or if it's going to look different.
2: Um, Go ahead.
3: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that the commenter is correct. Right. That um, in a lot of ways, which is that uh, it was something that we talked about before, which is that, like, if you look at racial discourse right now in the in at not not in small spaces, but overall like mainstream type of racial discourse. It is about diversity and inclusion, right? It is about diversity in workplaces, right? Um, out, uh, speaking outside of like the, anti, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter and the, the anti-police violence organizing, which is very, uh, you know, which obviously is a large part of this, but, but I'm talking about identity here, right? And Asian Americans, Latino Americans, it's all, it's all those types of questions. And so I don't, I don't begrudge people. I don't blame people who, who, who process their politics this way. I think the commenter is correct. Like this is the model that we've been given. And so, you know, what the book tries to say uh, is, hey, what if we what if we just didn't do this? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, what if we didn't, you know, like, what, what if we tried something else? What if we expanded political possibility? Um, you know, and that, that that's something I feel, you know, I feel very passionately about. So um.
2: Let, let's bring in Catherine from Woodside. Catherine, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. Hi. Um, so I'm Chinese American. I'm an immigrant and I have children that are adopted. Uh, my daughter is biracial, African-American and white, and my son is African-American. So I haven't read Jay's book, but I intend to, and I read his article in The Times, and he talked about white adjacency with the Asian-American community, and I, I know for a fact, you know, my children's um, um, elementary school, are full of biracial children who are half Asian and half white, but there are very few... Asian half Asian and half African American children, and I'm very interested in his comment about the racism that is inherent in the Asian community towards uh, African Americans. Um, right. I'll take my uh, comment off the air. Thank you. Uh,
2: thank you, Catherine.
3: Right, and I'm sure, as Catherine knows, it's not just uh, African American black people. It's also, you know, it's intensified in a lot of ways when when the people are biracial. You know, when when they are half when they are half black and half Asian. So, um, you know, this is true in Korea, right. Where, uh, the children of, you know, generally GIs who were like this, this might've been a generation before, but like, uh, people who are born in Korea are half black, you know, they, they, they they suffer a form of racism that I, I think would be shocking even to people here in America, um, and discrimination. And that does transfer over because, you know, same people are here in America, right? Like those people were raised in, in Korea. And so, Um, in terms of, 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 you know, uh, I, and I think that it is a, I think that it's something that needs to be like, I don't think that it needs to be something that is only discussed, right? Like, cause like that's sort of the, that's the, that's the sort of tagline that happens right now, which is that we need to talk about anti-blackness in the Asian American community. And, you know, I don't, I've never really understood what that means, you know, (laughs) like just go home and talk to your parents and say, Hey, like, don't do this. Right like, I, I think that there are better possibilities to address that. And, you know, one of them is to sort of say, like, what, what things do we all have in common? Like, what are our shared struggles, right? Like, how, how do we identify with one another? And, and And, you know, like that, that sort of work is just not done. Like, we almost assume that there are no commonalities, right? We almost assume that there are no pathways to solidarity. And that the only thing that matters is for the person to stop saying racist things, right? Like, I don't know. I find that such a limiting way to think about it. And and but I do think that it is sort of the mainstream way to think about it right now. And and you know, like I I just think it's bad. You know, I think it's bad. <laughs> That's all John John from San Francisco.
2: <laughs> Welcome to the call. We got lots of people running through now. John from San Francisco. Yeah. Welcome.
3: Hi, John. Uh yeah. Um my question
1: is um for uh, for Koreans who, who immigrated here like in the my parents uh immigrated here in 1956 and The whole assimilation process, I mean, was like what Aquila says. Uh, But the newer ones who came here after 1970s, I think, are causing sort of a problem of not assimilating by not assimilating. And I just wanted to hear if he had any comments about that.
3: Well, I... I think I know what you're, t- I don't think that not assimilating is a problem. I'll just say that first, right? I don't think that that's like a, I don't think that that's like a moral problem in any sort of way, but I do agree that there, that, po- that if you came in, if your parents came in 1956, uh, I am sure that you're one of the only Korean people that you knew because there weren't that many Korean people here in the country at the time. Um, like I said, most came post 1965 uh, in terms of, you know, not assimilating. It's true. You know, like uh, I have aunts who, who, moved to the United States in the 1970s, right? They lived their entire lives in Koreatown, and they barely speak English, right? They've been here, I don't know, how many years is that, like 50 years or something like that, right? Most of their lives have been spent here in the United States, and yet they do not pick up, uh, you know, they're not functional English speakers in any sort of way. But um, I think that's even more reason why, uh, you know, the category doesn't quite make sense, because I think it assumes, you know, like people like me or John, who you know, speak English, go about our lives in America, um, and 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 have you know are racialized in a type of way, but still are participating in a sort of legible form of Americanness, uh, Americanism or Americanness, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think for the for many, many, many people, especially recent immigrants, that that's just not true. And I, I think that's you know even more reason why the label is incoherent.
2: Last question you know, uh, you ever daydream about what it would have been like if your family had moved back to Korea after they got educated here in the States?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think about it a lot. Um, you know, I think about it every time I watch a movie or Korean drama or, um, you know, every time I go back to Korea and, you know, I see what it's like when my parents, you know, my parents grew up in a war zone. They're refugees from North Korea. You know, they showed me photos of what the what the river looked like that runs through Seoul when they were children. It was, you know, shacks by a river. You know, you go to Korea now. It's not that, you know? Um, and yeah, I, 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 do think about it, but you know, I, it, there's, there's never a sense of regret for me, right? Like um, I, I, you know, there's, there are many ways in which I think my upgrading has made me into like a, you know, like a, a person who is, you know, not particularly well in a lot of ways, but, I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know, and it's it's one of the anxieties that I feel with my with my own child, where, you know, I I wonder if she will go through all the things that I went through that sort of formed who I am and in some ways, you know, made me maybe sometimes unpleasant to be around, <laughs> but but that's me, you know, um, and I you know like I wonder if she growing up in here in the Bay Area with a lot of Asian. And people around her, you know, or even, you know, in a, in a way in which, like, she will be far more privileged than I was when I was growing up if she'll go through those things. And there's part of me that, that hopes that she does, but then there's also part of me that kind of understands that she won't. Yeah.
2: We've been talking with Jay Caspian Kang, staff writer for The New York Times Opinion Page and New York Times Magazine, about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.